Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we can talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he's out. He's out. He's out. Yes, sir. Right is out. Look, look at this. Right is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, welcome back. John Pialli Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, hour two of the radio program. Just a reminder, tweet at me at John underscore Pialli. Lots of stuff to get into. Let me know what you think. And we'll, of course, continue the discussion that way. But I'm going to start off this hour by playing an interview I recorded with former Major League First Baseman Willie Akins. And of course, Willie Akins had his uh, baseball career overshadowed by a history of cocaine abuse and stuff like that. And, you know, you, you'll hear in the interview how he was able to uh, kind of right the ship and kind of get himself to a point where he could be a positive influence to a lot of younger kids. He's the author of a book, Safe at Home, which is pretty much his life story. So hopefully you guys take a look at that on Amazon.com if it further interests you. But for, without further ado, here's my interview with former Royals, Angels, and Blue Jays First baseman, Willie Akins. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League first baseman, Willie Akins. Willie, what's going on, man? Not much, man. I just leave the house trying to raise a two-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, I hear you, man. I know, you know, it's, it's tough, but, you know, listen, man, it's, it, it works out for the best, man. Now, yeah, Willie, of course, you know, you're author of, a, you know, a book called Safe at Home. Um, if you want to, you know, we just talk a little bit about what, what, you know, got into putting together the book and, you know, what it means to you. Well, my book came out last uh, April, and it's my, my life story. And my two-year-old, my two-year-old, it's time to follow me around the house right now, man. She's just having to go crazy and everything, but... My book is uh, my life story, you know, it, it, tells, it tells about how I, I grew up and everything and became uh, a professional baseball player and also uh, tells the story how I, I screwed my life up as a professional baseball, baseball player too, man. Nah. I ended up becoming one of the first actors for the baseball players to go to prison. Now, you know, uh, like, we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. And, of course, you know, you, you obviously have a story to tell. You know, the fact that, you know, you were blessed with such talent to, you know, be not only a major league player, but a very good one. And, you know, you came through up with the Angels, and then you obviously had that, you know, that, that, that tremendous World Series in 1980. 
Uh, you know, tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, what what you think kind of led you kind of the wrong way, man, because, you know, you were obviously blessed with a lot of talent, and, you know, you, 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 had, you had a very good major league career going. Uh, I was blessed that I could hit. And I was slow as a runner. I was uh, adequate as a fielder, but God gave me the ability to, to be, become a, a pretty good hitter. And that's how I'm led to the, the major league so uh, quickly. But also, you know, just because of the desire of the clutch, man, uh, some bad choices. And, you know, throughout my not only career, I woke up each day and I, I did the right thing. And... After I got traded over to the Lawrence in 1980, uh, there was some guys on the team that, you know, used to party, like to get high and stuff like that, and I just became well part of that. And, and at one time, we had like six guys on our team that was snowing coke, that was getting high, and I was one of those guys. So basically what happened with me is that I don't want to say I hung out with the, the wrong crowd because I was hanging out with my, my teammates who were professional baseball players. And I was hanging out with other ball players on uh, other teams that were, were doing the same thing. And cocaine and getting high was a part of some players' lifestyle during the, the 1980s. But basically, I, I, made, I made the wrong choice of doing that. And eventually, I got caught. And... That's somewhat shortened my major league uh, baseball career because after after I got out of prison in 1984, I, I was traded to the Blue Jays and I played up there for like a year and a half. And after that, I couldn't I couldn't find a job in uh, in baseball. Yeah, well, see, yeah, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League First Baseman Willie Aikens. Now, you know, would you say, and you know, obviously we've heard enough, you know, enough stories, enough things to back up this statement, was, uh, you know, could a cocaine use in baseball around, you know, the early part of the 80s, that was pretty, uh, that was pretty rampant. There was probably a lot of that going on with a lot of other teams, too, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, I basically knew somebody on, on every team that was, was getting high. And right after that, you know, the steroids came in. During my whole uh, Major League Baseball career, which consisted of about seven years, I never heard anybody uh, talk about steroids, and which is pretty amazing, I think. But at the time, it was like cocaine and uh, amphetamines. And a lot of people have asked me if steroids would have been popular when I was playing or what I have used them. Well, if I was using cocaine, there's something out there that can enhance my, my performance on the baseball field. Of course, I tried steroids too. Uh, now, you know, in regards to cocaine, did you feel that, you know, the, the use of cocaine while you were playing enhanced your performance or would for another player? I never really thought about it. I mean, there were, were times that I would stay up all night and come to the ballpark tired and stuff like that, but I never thought of cocaine as being something that enhanced my performance on the baseball field. If anything, uh, basically in the, the back of my mind, you know, the thought was that if I continue to use this drug, that, hey, something uh, is going to happen to me. But there was something also in the, in the back of my head telling me that, I could do it and not be caught. But to really answer your question, no, I never thought cocaine would uh, enhance my performance out on the baseball field. If anything, it made me tired. And there were days, you know, like I said, I came to the ballpark 
wore out from, from staying up all night, you know, snorting cocaine and partying and drinking, man. Yeah, yeah, and I, I thought of that aspect of it too. That you know, like the fact that you know you you were up all night, and not you know, not really you know, not getting enough sleep, coming up to a game, it would almost kind of uh, you know maybe maybe do the opposite, kind of reduce your performance, maybe not have you up at the level that you know you you know maybe you would have been on a good night's sleep. Well, that's what happened, and I think it probably had the, the same same effect on. Some of the, the other ball, ball players too. It's just that I think I was naive and didn't even realize that that kind of stuff was going on in my my baseball career. And I never came to the conclusion that hey, this stuff is bad for me and I need to quit. You know, 1983 was my best year in the, the major leagues. I hit 23 home runs. I hit over 300. But 1983 was also the year that I used cocaine more than any other other year while I was a baseball player. So why should I think anything is wrong in my life? And I really didn't think anything was wrong until we got busted and ended up going to, uh, to prison for 81 days. Yeah, and I tell you, man. You know, like we said before, you know, you, you, you know, you came up there. You, you know, you put up good numbers. There's probably other than the fact of, you know, uh, of the fact that you know, like you know, you probably knew in your mind that it wasn't the right thing to do. Like you said, it didn't, it, it didn't, it didn't bring you down. You weren't worried about you know not having a job, not being able to play every day. And you know, you know, it's a, you know, it's an unfortunate thing that you went through. And uh, you know, so it's good to see that you know you were able to you know you're able to write it and. I'm sure a lot of that's involved in, you know, the Safe at Home book and, you know, kind of telling your story about, you know, how, yeah, you had some downs, but you were able, you know, you were able to, you know, acknowledge it at some point and straighten your life out. I think the only thing that really, uh, I don't want to say scared me about cocaine, but caught my attention most of the time was that it was illegal and that we were doing something that was illegal and if we got caught that... Something bad uh, could happen to us, but outside of looking bad, I never thought it was gonna uh, hurt my, my baseball career or uh, my performance out on the baseball field. And at the time, it didn't. But you know, we should have been smart enough that I should have been smart enough to realize that we're doing something that uh, is illegal. And if we get caught with it, something bad could happen to our baseball career. But I never came to that conclusion. Now, once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League First Baseman Willie Aikens. Now, you know, as you came up, you obviously came up through, you know, the California Angels system, played a couple of years there, and then was traded to the Royals, which is where you kind of took off. Uh, talk a little bit about, you know, part of the 1980s, you and then you kind of starred in the World Series. You know, World Series, of course, you know, guys ended up losing to the Phillies, but, you know, you had two, home, two, two games in that series where you hit two home runs. You know, take, take us back to, you know, 1980. Talk a little bit about being part of that World Series and, of course, the impact you had. Well, a lot of people don't realize that in 1979, I made the team out of spring training, and I wasn't playing because the Angels just had traded for Rob Carew. He was playing first base, and they had Don Baylor as the, the designated hitter. So I wasn't playing, and Rob Carew broke his hand about a month into the season. And that's when Jeff Ferguson called me inside of his office and told me, he said, Willie, you are my first baseman now. But for the next two months, 
I'm astonished myself as a, a major league baseball player. And I had 21 home runs and drove in 80 some runs in 1979 with only 379 at bats playing for the Angels. And the California Angels to beat the Royals out that year for the division. I didn't get a chance to play in the playoffs because September 18th, I showed up to second base and I tore up my knee. So I had to have surgery. And you have to have surgery to catch the Royals and he needed the first baseman. And it was for me. In the first half of 1980, I came over to the Royals and I struggled. I mean, I really struggled, man. I was just coming off a knee surgery. I was trying to recuperate. I was playing on artificial turf. And my knee, for the most part, was only about 80, 85%. But you know, I really give credit to my manager at the time, Jim Fryer. This man stepped behind me, even though I was having a, a terrible year. And when the second half started, my knee started to feel better. I became more comfortable playing there in Kansas City. And I started to take off. And I ended up driving in 98 runs in 1980, right behind George Brett. George had about 103, 104. And I had 98, so uh, I really came back and did an outstanding job. And the playoffs in the World Series were just a carryover from the season. I said it's the second half hot. I went into the playoffs of the state. Yankees, I hit 364, I think. I finally beat Ron Gifford with a true run single. And this dude, he used to own me. And then in the playoffs was a, a carryover to the World Series. I mean, I hit up a 400 in the World Series. I had those four home runs, uh, multiple home games. And, you know, baseball is somewhat a game of streaks. And I was in a, a hot streak going to the playoffs in the World Series. And that's why I had such a uh, outstanding World Series at, at that time. Yeah, and I tell you, you know, it's it's one of those things that, you know, you, you benefited from having those extra games. You know, not every team made it to playoffs. Of course, the playoff format's different now than it was before. You just had the two division winners going. So you obviously benefited from getting a chance to be in a postseason, obviously made the most of it. Yeah, now as as you move on, you know, those Royals teams you play for, you know, you know, in addition to the Angels teams, I mean the seventy nine Angels team was obviously no joke. You mentioned guys like Rod Carew and Don Baylor and, you know, Bobby Gritch was on that team and you know, you know, you really had some good players there. But the you know, those those Royals teams really sustained their success for about, you know, a five, six year period. Tell tell us a little bit about your feeling playing with guys like uh guys like George Brett and, you know, th- those guys on those Royal teams that really sustained that success. Yeah, I'm a creole. 
against this John Piel and I'm here at former Major League First Baseman Willie Aikens. Now, of course, you know, your, your arrest in 1983, you know, leads you to, you know, serve some time. And, of course, getting suspended for Major League Baseball, you end up getting traded to the Toronto Blue Jays where you play for, you know, about about a year and a half. Tell us a little bit about your, your time in Toronto. Well, I didn't enjoy my time in Toronto like I did in Kansas City. And for one, I went there as an opportunity player. And at one time in Kansas City, I played every single day. And I missed the first uh, 45 days of 1984. And I, I not only went to prison, but we ended up getting suspended for 45 days. So I didn't come back until like May 15th, uh, a month and a half into uh, the baseball season. So I was totally behind everybody else, the pitchers, and being an opportunity player, which was only part-time, I never really had a chance to catch up, and I struggled, I struggled the whole year, I mean, I, I did terrible, and you just don't feel comfortable when you had success in the major league, and then all of a sudden, you go to a new team, and you're not able to perform like you can pull Absolutely, you had one of the best years ever, really, on any level. I mean, to hit 454 all those home runs is ridiculous, and I'm sure that you know you're aware that you know your last major league at bat, you hit a you hit a two run home run, which ended up tying the game. You probably the last thing on your mind is that you thought that would be your last major league at bat, right? Well, my last major league at bat was a home run against the Texas Rangers. Yeah. And after the game, when the general manager came to my hotel room and told me that I was getting released, I couldn't believe it. I mean, how, how many players can get a home run there last at bat and don't never get a chance to go to uh, bat again in a major league game? So I was like in, in total shock, man, but it is what it is, man. You know, they probably had made that decision. Before I hit the home run anyway, because we had a guy on the disabled 
Mexican league. I mean, they're, you know, they they were good, not just '86, but you put up some very good numbers throughout the rest of the, uh, you know, the '80s and into the early part of the '90s. Now, you know, to, you know, obviously, you know, you probably you have some regrets about some of the things that you know happened in your career, some of the decisions you made. But um, you know, now now that it's all it's all said and done, are you uh, you know you uh, you content with what's happened, and you happy you know in the position that you're in right now? chance to speak to, you know, these groups, like you said, I think you hit on something very powerful, is the fact that, you know, you understand that there's a handful of people there that are just going to kind of just not listen to what you say, but you have the chance to impact perhaps one or two people, that maybe somebody else is in a similar situation than you are, and you could actually get through to them, and obviously, I mean, that, that probably would mean the world to you to just be able to get through to a person or two. You know, I've always thought about that. 
was started when it came along while I was a professional baseball player that had been in prison, that had overcome drugs or had struggled with drugs and alcohol and had spoke to our team or had talked to me or, you know, just, I don't know, tried to help me change what I was doing. Who's to say that I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have changed what I was doing at, at that time? It's very possible. So now, you know, when I, I talk to these young kids or the baseball players or whatever, hey, they are, are out there, they're signing these big bonuses and all this money and stuff, and the desires of the trust will always be there. And my testimony, uh, they talking to them, if that can influence them to have a long baseball career, it's so be it. But not only the players out there on the baseball field, but just people in general, man. That's my thing, and that's what I do now. And I believe that's, what, that's part of my calling as a Christian to be a servant and to help people how good God is. I tell you, listen, a lot of great stuff there, man. And listen, Willie, I wish you the best of luck, man, with everything you're doing and keep up the good work. And, you know, once again, you know, safe at home. So Willie Aiken's story, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure it's out there on Amazon, stuff like that, you know, for, for those of you listening that, you know, be interested in buying the book. Thanks, thanks a lot, Willie, man. I appreciate you having a couple minutes. How are you doing it, John? Uh, thanks for having me on my show, man. Then I to pursue it with you and your, your audience, man, and hopefully one day in the future, who knows, maybe we'll get a chance to meet each other. No, absolutely, man. Thanks a lot, Willie. I appreciate it, man. That's hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with Willie Aikens, a very powerful interview because he talks about things in regards to the cocaine abuse in Major League Baseball in the early part of the 80s. And we don't get really get into that too much. We're so facts fascinating and fixated on steroids. And, you know, every conversation is, hey, the guys are doing steroids. They're, you know, destroying the game. And you, know, you can make a case that cocaine didn't necessarily destroy the game of Major League Baseball as much as it destroyed the individual. But you could talk about the same type of clubhouse presence and people all competitive and stuff like that. And, you know, you look at really, in my opinion, the rise in the use of cocaine was kind of attributed to the increase in player salaries. Now, remember, the reserve clause was removed, you know, in the early to mid part of the 70s. You had free agency kind of sweeping across as, uh, you know, as early as 1974, 1975, and, of course, more predominant later on. And players are getting paid more than they've ever gotten paid before. And fortunately, a lot of people make bad decisions with that, have more access to money, and ended up getting into cocaine, which, you know, was a lot bigger of a deal then people ended up uh, making it out to be. And that's the unfortunate thing. You look at, you know, guys like Keith Hernandez and Steve Howe and Joachim Andujar, and, you know, the, the list goes on to, you know, of course, Mets players like Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden and, you know, how it ended up ruining and, you know, hindering Major League Baseball playing careers. And, you know, it's sad to look at a guy like Willie Akins, who was such a talented player. And that's one thing that I made sure that I made the point. He was such a very good hitter. And, you know, could have had a great career. And, of course, he regrets the decisions he's made. And it's great to see that he's got the opportunity now to talk to kids about, you know, what, you know, he went through. And hopefully somebody or multiple people won't make the same mistakes down the road. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take a break, be back with a lot more stuff going on after this. MTR Radio is already your home for the best sports talk in New York and Philly. 
Coming soon, the next leap in the evolution of internet radio will have you tuning in all day, every day. Close out your workday with Sean Bretherick and Dan Feuerstein from 3 to 5 p.m. Then when your teams are done for the day, David Dobin will be there to recap all the action from 10 to midnight. It all starts Monday, May 6th on MTR Radio, America's radio station. You're listening to MTR Radio. Welcome to MTRRadio.com. You can listen to our live programming Monday through Friday. Get your voice heard by calling us at 609-910-0687 and on Facebook and Twitter at MTR Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. Check out the Android Marketplace and iPhone App Store for the MTR Radio app. 24-7 streaming live and on demand. MTR. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the interviews with Earl Averill and Willie Akins. But I want to get into something that's kind of struck my nerve a little bit because, you know, the more you pay attention to media, particularly in the New York metropolitan area, the East Coast, Northeast, you know, whether it's Major League Baseball, the NFL, NBA, NHL, you know, you always have to deal with the majority of fans that just seem very short-sighted in regards to what they feel about certain things and where they want to pass the blame on for a team or an organization or whoever they root for not getting the job done. And I'm going to focus on the New York Mets with a little bit of thought with the New York Yankees and the Philadelphia Phillies because one thing that they have in common is the fact that fans of all three teams seem to always want to put the blame over the lack of performance of the team on the manager. And if you've heard my opinion and how I feel about certain things in regards to uh, baseball in particular, I, I tend to be more of a guy who seems to be a little bit of an apologist in regards to managers because you know I, I think they have certainly the toughest job, tougher than the players that go out there and play, tougher than the general manager that has the responsibility to put a team together and decisions involved, whether it's signing free agents or making trades and stuff like that. The manager has to deal 100% of the time with whatever he has on the field. And whether you're talking about Terry Collins or Joe Girardi or Charlie Manuel, or of course now Ryan Sandberg, with the Philadelphia Phillies, it, the manager has to deal with whatever happens with the players. If the players aren't playing right, the manager has to deal with it. If the general manager doesn't put the right players around him or refuses to make moves to make the team better, the manager has to deal with it. If, if the team has a bad farm system and the young players that are coming up can't compete at a major league level, the manager has to deal with it. And you know, in regards to the New York Mets, they're in a situation where – Sandy Alderson obviously took over. He took over a tough, spot, you know, in a tough spot with Omar Minaya and the uh, excessive contracts that he had, and uh, probably the thought from the Will Ponds, you know, with the Ponzi scheme and Bernie Madoff, the whole thing, that they were going to have to drop payroll dramatically. 
And Sandy Alderson knew that when he came in to take the job. And he brought in Terry Collins as his manager. And I think a lot of people are, are kind of on a thought, hey, the Mets aren't doing well. Who cares about the talent that's on the field? Just fire the manager and move on. While I'm not in a position where I'm necessarily saying keep him, if he was let go and somebody else was brought in, I wouldn't think it was the end of the world. But why is there a double standard in regards to a, a general manager and a manager that were both brought in at the same time? Because everybody goes out there and they talk about Sandy Alderson to a point, well, you know what? He had to get rid of the bad contracts for a while. He had to build up a farm system. He had to make some wise trades. The team is gradually getting better. They're going in the right direction. But when you put that same uh, discussion in regards to the manager, well, you know, he, he's responsible for this team being successful no matter what. Well, did you ever look at the point, and those of you who are so anti-Terry Collins and just think that he needs to be fired, and once he's let go, all of a sudden the New York Mets are going to become a competitive baseball team? Before you get into this, and, and I, I'm, I'm glad, I'm looking forward to getting on it with you guys on Twitter, at John underscore Pielli, let's go, let's do it. But when Terry Collins took over as the manager of the New York Mets, at the same time as Sandy Alderson took over as the general manager of the New York Mets, it's safe to say that the amount of talent that was on the field then is better than what's on the field right now. The Mets had Jose Reyes playing shortstop, an all-star, a legitimate guy that you know if he's healthy could go out there and put up numbers. Carlos Beltran was playing center field. I know he's battling some injuries, but he had a very good final season with the Mets in 2011. Two very good seasons for the St. Louis Cardinals since. Wouldn't the Mets love to have players like that on their team right now? Do they have players like that on their team right now? Last time I checked, who's playing shortstop? Ruben Tejada is not even good enough to be in a, a, an everyday shortstop for the New York Mets. Omar Quintanilla, a journeyman utility infielder, is playing shortstop every day. So, you know, when we, when we want to give Sandy Alderson a pass for what's happened over the last couple of years, which I have absolutely no problem with, then why does the blame have to be solely on the manager? Why does Sandy Alderson get a pass and the talk is fire Terry Collins and all of a sudden everything will be good? I know these, these 1986 Mets fans have this sick fascination with Wally Backman and think he's going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread, thinks that all he's going to do is come in a clubhouse and a group of born losers are all of a sudden going to become winners just like in the Bad News Bears. It doesn't work that way. You need talent to have success at the major league level. And it, you know, to me, honestly, I think a manager of a major league baseball team in, in some cases is overrated. I mean, do you think that Joe Torre was legitimately the best manager in baseball when he was winning four out of five World Series with the New York Yankees? You know, the honest truth about the whole thing is that, yes, he did a good job. He managed the players right. He managed the players well that he had and led them to a World Series championship. But that doesn't make him John McGraw. It doesn't make him, you know, Dick Williams or you know, uh, Billy Martin or anybody else you could put when you're talking about great managers, Tony La Russa, Bobby Cox. It doesn't make him that. Sometimes a manager's reputation is built by the talent that you have on a field. And you could talk about Charlie Manuel. And, you know, I know a lot of people that, you know, follow the Phillies and, you know, personalities on the MTR radio station feel that, you know, the Philly, you know, Charlie Manuel was probably a beneficiary of the talent that the Philadelphia Phillies had. May not have been the greatest manager in the world, but you know, ended up with the best winning percentage in the history of the franchise, but may not have been the greatest manager in the world. 
Sometimes a manager's reputation is built off of the players that you have. And if you get what you think on the surface is a better manager, you're not necessarily becoming a better team unless you get better players. And for those that say that 2014 is going to be the season for the New York Mets. For those of you who say that the 2013 offseason is going to see the Mets make the couple moves that they need to to bring in offensive players, to bring the power bats in, to solidify the team, to bring that extra starter, to set the bullpen up where the New York Mets are going to be legitimate playoff contenders in the 2014 season. For those of you who think that, do you, do you think a simple changing of a manager is going to make that any better? The Mets are going to perform better with a different manager than Terry Collins if the talent level is better. Well, here's what I have to say to that. Why not give it a try? Why not throw Terry Collins out there and kind of make him a sacrificial lamp? For those of you that hate Terry Collins, for those of you who want to see him out, I would think that you would want to be in favor of seeing the Mets upgrade their team and put this guy on there as pretty much a sacrificial lamp. If, if the Mets fail, if they get off to a bad start in the 2014 season, once Sandy Alderson has put the pieces in for the team to be competitive that year, that's when you fire the manager. What are you going to do when the opposite happens? What are you going to do if you get your wish and all of you who just hope and pray that Wally Backman is going to be the savior and going to put this team on a new level? What are you going to do in 2014 when you have a new manager, when, he, when he's out there and Wally, Wally Ball doesn't work right away and the team gets off to a 10-15 and 15 start and ends up 10 games under 500 after the end of May? What are you going to do? You're going to fire the guy after two months and say this team will be perfectly fine if we have a new manager? Because that's what New York fans do all the time. It's always about the coach. It's always about the manager. What about the players that are on the field? What about the guy that puts the team together? How come they don't have the same accountability as the manager has? But, you know, in conclusion, you know, you look at Terry Collins, and listen, I don't think he's the greatest manager in the world. I, I don't put him up there amongst the top managers. He would not be a guy that I would recommend for a team to hire if they had a managerial vacancy. But there are a lot worse in the game. And Terry Collins deserves, in my opinion, the opportunity to manage this team when it's taken a step as far as talent on the field. Because he has put up with the, with the last three seasons where pretty much his horses have been taken away from him. Not just, and that's not simply injuries. It's, it's the talent level on this team. From Jose Reyes to Carlos Beltran to R.A. Dickey. The team has continued to move players and let them go. And the team has gotten progressively worse because of talent. Not solely because of the management of the players on the field. And I think it, they, that Terry Collins should have the opportunity to come back next year. I'm not talking about having a ridiculous contract extension, anything silly or foolish like that. Bring him back for one year. If you want to throw an option in for the following year, that's fine. If you don't, I'm okay with it. But in regards to that, I think Terry Collins deserves the opportunity to come back next year. And if the Mets get off to a bad start in 2014, I'll be the first to say that they should replace him with somebody else. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, taking our next break. Be back to finish up the program after this. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And you know, we always see one or two 
accidents along the way, and we wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and body work, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609-927-9454, and check out their website, www.redroseautobody.com. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Red Rose Body Shop, 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, 609-927-9454. Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist. 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to MTRRadio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, finishing up the program here. And right now I'm going to play an interview I recorded with former Major League outfielder Jerry Morales. And Jerry, of course, had a chance, was originally drafted by the New York Mets in 1966, ended up being taken in the expansion draft by the San Diego Padres, was a Padre from 69 to 73. I had his best years with the Chicago Cubs from 1974 to 1977, would eventually return to them from 1981 to 83, 78, he played for the Cardinals. 79, he played for the Tigers. 1980, he returned to the New York Mets, a team that originally drafted him. He was a 1977 All-Star, had his best years from 74 to 77 with the Cubs. And I hope you guys enjoyed his spot here with former Major League outfielder Jerry Morales. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League outfielder Jerry Morales. Jerry, what's going on, man? Thanks for having a couple minutes today. Yes, nice to talk to you. No, absolutely, man. And of course, you know, you had you had a chance to play, you know, several years in the major leagues, and you know, you came up with the the San Diego Padres organization. Tell us a little bit about being part of the the Padres in 1969 and their first year in Major League Baseball. Well, in '69, uh, that was a expansion team, San Diego. But before that, in '66, I signed as a amateur baseball player uh, with the Mets. So I spent some time with the Mets in the minor league, then and in the expansion draft in '69. So I went to San Diego. San Diego spent uh, five years, uh, from '69 to '73. '73, they traded to Chicago to the Cubs. So I spent another four years uh, from '74 to '77 with the Cubs. In '78, I went to St. Louis. '79, Detroit. 
80, back with the Mac. And from 81 to 83, that was my last year, so I spent there with the Cubs. Yeah, now of course, when you were traded to the Cubs for the '74 season, you really, you really had the most success of your career from '74 to '77. You put up some very good numbers. You established yourself as an everyday outfielder for the Cubs. Tell us a little bit about that time and what it meant to, you know, play a predominant role on those teams. Well, that was a great time. '73, I was a platoon player in San Diego with John Grubb. So they trained me for Glenn Becker. So I went to Chicago. Uh, Whitey Lackman was the manager. So he gave me the opportunity to play every day. So I was playing left field. At that time, Billy Whelan was with the club. So they moved him to, to first base. So I played in left field that year. Um, 74 and 75, I led the club uh, with RBI. In 75, uh, I played in right field. Jose Caldenar was the other outfielder with Monday. So those four years from '74 to '77, that was my best years in the in the, in the big league, you know. And uh, in '77, I made the All-Star team, and that was good. And uh, I thought that I was there. I was going to be there for a while, but they trained me to St. Louis. So from St. Louis, I went to Detroit, and then the Mets, and I I my uh, last two years uh, from '81 to '83, uh, I went back to the Cubs. So that, uh, in 83, was my last year in the big league. Now, of course... So that, was a, that was a good experience, you know, the, and I considered having a pretty decent career. I enjoyed it. That was a nice journey. And then after that, and uh, I worked as a minor league instructor with the club for two years, from 84 to 86. Then I was a scouting for the, for the Dodgers for three years. And then in uh, 2002, I went back uh, as a coach, first range coach, and I filled with the Expos. And uh, from the Expos, I was there for uh, from 2002 to 2004. And then in 2007 to 2008, I went to Washington to coach first base and uh, an outfield. And I'll tell you, you obviously... You obviously had a, a, a great experience over the course of several different years. Now, you, you know, as, as you ended up getting into coaching and stuff like that, did you feel like it was a tough transition from becoming a player and going into coaching? Well, that, that's usually the way it is. You know, the, you spend some time playing the game, know about the game, and then I uh, had the experience to, to coach in the minor league. You know, uh, with the club from... Uh, 84 at the, in September in the in the instructional league 85 and 86. So I had that experience as a you know as a develop develop some players in the minor league. So and then I have the opportunity to to coach in the big league. So I coached for five years and that was a you know pretty nice experience. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Pielli here, former Major League outfielder Jerry Morales. Now, you know, as, as you were obviously drafted by the New York Mets in 1966, did it mean anything to you when you, you ended up joining the team in 1980, you know, 14 years after you were drafted? Did you feel like maybe when, when you were drafted, you had a little bit of unfinished business in the majors joining the Mets in 1980? Well, uh, you know, that was the thing that happened to me because uh, – at that time, when I, when I went to San Diego in 69, so I put, I put on uh, a good year, especially that year in 69, double eight. 
So that was a new franchise, and uh, I had more opportunity than probably the, the one that I would have in, in, uh, with the Mets. So all the time, in 1980, I came back to the Mets, you know, with the big league. Joe, Joe Torre was the manager. So uh, I had that experience to, you know, to play for him. But at that time, we didn't have that, that good a ball club. So we had, we had no chance to go anywhere. But, uh, you know, it was nice, a good organization. And, uh, and then in 206, uh, I coached for them in the minor league, in the, in the, rookie, in, in the rookie ball, you know, with the men. And, uh, you know, like I mentioned you before, it was a pretty nice experience for me. Yeah, it definitely must have been. And, of course, you know, you end up coming back to the Cubs for 81 to 83. Well, it was the last year over there. And then in 84, they come back and they had a great season and they won the, the East. And they, they went to, uh, they went in a playoff with the Padres. That was a three out of five. And they opened that season in Chicago. And they won the first two. And then when they moved to San Diego, they lost the, the next three games. So yeah. that was probably the chance that they had, they had to make it to the World Series because they haven't been in the World Series in a long time. But they, they, they could make it. Yeah, no question about it. And, of course, you know, on the 1983 season, you, you actually get to play with a couple of the players that end up becoming integral parts of the 84 team. Did you see anything in the 1983 Cubs being, a, be, being on that team to think that they could have taken it to the next level the next year? Uh, yeah, I think they, they had uh, some kind of talent that, you know, the uh, Ron Say was there. There were some players that uh, Ryan Sanders, Larry Boa, all the sudden they get, uh, the, the next year they're ending having uh, Gary Matthews, Ogniff, and all those guys. So that was, they made the difference. So they play a great ball uh, during that year, and they make it. You know, they, for the, in 83, they were kind of flat. They, they need some, you know, some players and uh, they finally get it the next year. So they put everything together and they, they're ending having a good year. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you know, they end up putting it together, of course, in the 1984 season. Did you, uh, did, did you have any ambitions to play again after the 83 season or you just had a sense that it was probably finished by that no, time? No, that was it. That was it because uh, I wasn't playing regular. As a matter of fact, that year in 83, my last year, I only had 87 at bat. Well, that, what they try to tell you, you know, <laughs> it's time to go, so I decide not to play anymore. Now, I tell you, you know, you, you know as you obviously, you know, you had, a, you had a long major league career. Was there any particular one moment that kind of stands out to you to say, you know what, I, w- I was glad to be there at that time? Well, there's, there's a few, you know, those, those third, four years that I had over there, they were great, and I was playing every day. I already saw on my last three years over there, so maybe went to 83, so I was a, a part-time player. Even that in 81 and 82, I get to play a lot, but, but in 83, for some reason, I didn't get to play much because they had a, a, an outfielder, Scotty. Uh, he was going to get an opportunity to play every game. So, he, you know, they, they tried to get some young players in the lineup. So I understand that. And that was it for me. Yeah, now, as, as you got a chance to play, how much pride did you take in your defense in the outfield? Because, you know, we talk all the time about the way the game has kind of changed. And, you know, outfielders, certainly in the time that you played, probably took a lot more pride in, 
you know, not not only not only covering ground and making plays, but also making strong throws, hitting the cutoff man, stuff like that. Well, there's a lot, a lot of play to play in the outfield, especially like, like you mentioned today. I have, I get to watch a lot of, of Major League Baseball games, and uh, that's the thing about the outfielders. Here in the court of man, a lot of players that they, they miss the court of man. And in the, and at that level, you know, you, you have to hit the court of man, you know? So you, how many how many assists you have a year? If they don't have 20 or 25 assists, if they don't want to have that, might as well hit the court of man so you can keep that. That hit it in first base, and, and you can keep the ball playing order. Well, you know, it's, a, it's something that, that when I used to play, we used to take infield every day. The players today, they don't take infield anymore. So you have to do, you, you uh, as an outfield coach, you have to work with the outfielders fairly. You know, because in the minor league, they do that too. They, they take infield every day. All the solo, when they, when they make it to the big league, they don't take infield anymore. And uh, that's part of the, the preparation for the game. Now, did you? Uh, it, it, it's not, I don't think it's a big thing, but for the, for the consistency, for the ability to hit the court of man is very important. Now, it is. Now, you, don't have to, you, don't, you don't have to have a real strong arm. If you had it and you were accurate, that's a plus. But if you don't have it, you have to hit the court of man. There's no way you're going to miss it, you know? So, like that, you can keep the ball playing order and you can avoid a big inning. Hitting the court of man. If you if you don't get the the, the runner a home play or third base or the solo on the hitter, he's gonna he's gonna be on second base. And the rally keep on going and they, they instead of have a, a short inning, they're gonna be ending having a big inning. Now, very true. Once again, this is John Pielli with Jerry Morales. Now, you know, as you became a coach and, you know, involved, you know, as an outfield coach and stuff like that, did you make any pushes to try to make, you know, perhaps bring infield outfield back into the game of Major League Baseball? No, because that was, uh, by the time that I was there, they, they already had that, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't took infield anymore. So, you know, if I would say uh, tell Frank Robinson, Frank Robinson, Frank, uh, we, we got to take in field. So, so I never told him, you know? Nah, I, I never told him. But so, so the, 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 what they do today is that every day uh, they take in field once in a while while you're a home team. You know, they go early and they take it field. Well, they don't do it on the road. And they don't do it uh, every day either, you know? So what you have to do is you have to work uh, with your outfielders during BP. Now, I tell you, that's one of the aspects of the game that certainly we've gotten away from. Listen, Jerry, I want to thank you for having some time today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and hopefully we can stay in touch. Maybe I can speak to you sometime in the near future. Another pass ball show in the books. So I want to thank uh, Earl Averill, Willie Akins, and Jerry Morales for being part of the program. We'll be back with you next week right here on America's radio station, MTR Radio.